You are listening to Girl Speak, a podcast series all about art, history, and contemporary culture with a girl's eye view. Hi everyone, welcome to episode 50 of Girl Speak, Girlhood Through History. I'm Sarah, a junior girl with Girl Museum. Thanks for tuning in, downloading or streaming us today. Girl Speak is produced by Girl Museum, the first and only museum in the world dedicated to celebrating girlhood. Girl Museum explores the art, history and culture of girls around the world in the past and present. All of our programmes are volunteer run and supported by listeners like you. Visit us on the web at www.girlmuseum.org. In celebration of Girl Museum's 50th podcast, I'll be exploring the history of girlhood from prehistoric times to the modern day. While many different understandings of what it means to be a girl, and indeed what the ideal girl should be, exist within the world today, these have developed over tens of thousands of years through times of exploration and social organisation. Some places in the world have enjoyed concepts of girlhood that promoted independent thought and equal opportunities, while others restricted girlhood experiences through ideals that viewed women as subservient to men, preparing them only to be mothers and wives. Even now, experiences of girlhood and expectations of girls across the world are very different and are dependent on different histories, cultural beliefs and access to good jobs, education, healthcare and political stability. We sometimes forget that the way we experience the world is specific to our time and place. Having a childhood seems so normal to some of us, but for many children in the world, time spent playing and going to school is not a reality. Even countries where children are expected to be in education until they are 16 have histories of very short childhood, followed by hard work and difficult lives. When I talk about girlhood at different times and in different places across the world, Think about how your experience of being a girl may be different to your mum, to your grandmother and to your great-grandmother. Is it even different from your friends? The exploration of prehistoric times means trying to understand a period before written sources and therefore a time which we must interpret ourselves rather than relying on the first-hand accounts of people at the time. Prehistoric evidence therefore relies upon materials that survive tens of thousands of years in the earth or in hidden places such as caves, away from potential destructive forces of the weather, animals and people. Generally, our understanding of prehistoric human experience relies upon burials, stone objects, cave paintings and the careful examination of places where humans lived. Due to the lack of written sources, archaeologists interpret these materials or use hunter-gatherer groups from the present day. There are some problems with both approaches, as both the idea that modern archaeologists think in the same way as prehistoric humans, and that modern hunter-gatherers have not changed dramatically in tens of thousands of years, is unlikely. However, archaeologists use what resources they have to try and understand how people lived in prehistoric times. How, then, did prehistoric people consider girlhood, the role of girls within society, and what was expected of them? Archaeologists such as Brian Hayden, have argued that similar patterns of different tasks for men and women in hunter-gatherer groups across the world suggest that prehistoric women were generally not involved in hunting, 
but rather processed animals that were killed, gathered food around the area in which the group were living, and raised the children. While there is some evidence of women being buried with weapons such as arrows, it is unlikely that they would have been involved in the central role of hunting. As meat provided the most nutritious food, access to and success at hunting would have been the most common way to, to power for prehistoric societies. The status of women would therefore have been generally lower than men. One of the most well-known art figures of prehistoric Europe is the so-called Mother Goddess. Found across Europe and the Middle East, figurines of the Mother Goddess start appearing in archaeological sites from about 24,000 years ago. They are the earliest known statues showing the human body and their voluptuous nature has been interpreted as focused on fertility. As with all pre-modern societies, especially those based on high labour activities, prehistoric communities would have valued the production of healthy children to contribute to the community's successful running. Women would therefore be valued for their ability to produce children. Later on in prehistory, these mother goddess figures are joined by male and animal objects. These suggest that fertility and the ability to produce children were very important for early hunter-gatherer groups in the Paleolithic. Once these communities were more established, their interests and therefore religious objects became more varied. Women and girls would have received a level of social status due to their ability to produce children, but as communities became more complex and focused on success rather than just existence, the status of women may have declined. Prehistoric burial sites across the world show a higher number of male burials than female, suggesting that either women were buried differently or some kind of gender selection was taking place. If male children were more highly valued, then girlhood during prehistory may have been a difficult time. However, the exchange of women between groups in current hunter-gatherer tribes is a common way through which alliances and trade are established. So girls would have been a valuable part of this process of creating networks between groups and as their potential for mothers. While some archaeologists suggest that prehistoric hunter-gatherer communities were more equal in terms of gender, the majority of current hunter-gatherer groups demonstrate increased male power and access to more essential jobs. The lower level of prehistoric female graves and burials across the world also suggests that women were not given the same status as men. Girlhood at this stage in history would have been focused on a short childhood, engaging in tasks allocated to women, potentially being given to another group as part of an alliance, and ultimately the central role of childbearing. A long jump from the prehistoric period to classical Rome. While human society and culture had changed dramatically, had concepts of girlhood changed alongside them? Recent research in, into Roman society suggests that levels of freedom for women to move about and live their lives were significantly less than historians had previously imagined, and stricter than many other contemporary societies. As with the prehistoric period, our understanding of this time is limited by the evidence that has been left by many archaeological layers of humans living and working in Italy since the Roman era. Much of what is understood about Roman girls in particular has been developed from tombstone inscriptions, legal documents that talk about the rights of girls and their families, and myths and legends that have been passed on through writing and generations of storytellers.
From this evidence, historians argue that unlike Roman boys, Roman girls did not celebrate the end of girlhood and the beginning of being an adult with a ritual, but rather with their marriage and the start of their lives as women. Sexual purity was essential for an ideal Roman girl, and much of their education during this period was aimed to keep their honour safe. While girls were educated, lessons focused on moral tales of those who did not abide by social etiquette and disobeyed their father. Instead of learning, as we understand it today, Roman girls were taught the virtues of respectability, rather than as independent thinking individuals, preparing them for lives as wives and mothers. Girls were commonly viewed as becoming increasingly emotionally unstable and therefore more dangerous in terms of losing their family honour once they had started puberty. Greater control was generally exercised in terms of schooling and going outside the home. It was very important for Roman girls to be married as virgins and the family honour depended upon them remaining virtuous. Most free Roman women, rather than slaves, were expected to only leave the house with a chaperone and wearing respectable clothes to avoid any male advances or any events that could blemish their respectability. Legal documents state that only women who followed these rules would be protected by the law if anything happened to them. If a girl's virtue was ruined before marriage, fathers were allowed by law to punish them and some actually killed their daughters. Cases of this were rare, but most Roman men only wanted to marry virtuous girls leaving unrespectable daughters an unmarried and disgraced burden upon their family. As girls were expected to be virgin brides, some Roman girls married at a very young age, as young as 12. Medical papers of this time warn against pregnancies at such a young age, and, as, and many Roman writers tell of their young brides dying in childbirth. Tombstones suggest that the wealthier classes tended to marry their girls at a younger age than poor families. For wealthy families, the marriage would seal a political or social alliance between two groups, and daughters therefore represented an important way to increase your power and influence. Losing such an important tool would be a disaster, so girls were married early to avoid losing virtue and respectability. Girls in poorer families would be working and contributing to their families' lives before their marriage, so would be needed at home for longer. Marriage was seen as a coming of age, with a girl becoming a woman, leaving her family home to live with her new, older husband, under whose command she was placed. After marriage, a girl's freedom would not be increased, still reliant on a chaperone and expected to dedicate herself to the feminine virtues of obedience, respectability, fidelity and the central role of the mother and the wife. The Middle Kingdoms of India was during a similar time to the European medieval period. While men were traditionally the head of the family during this time in India's history, women still enjoyed a position of respect. There is also evidence to suggest that women had some political influence. While girls and women were dependent upon their fathers and husbands, there were no rules stopping them from engaging with society outside their homes. In certain societies, women also engaged as fully as men in religious and political ceremonies. During the early period of the Middle Kingdoms, women of high status such as queens, princesses and wives of nobles were educated to a high level in order to support their husbands and offer them useful and important advice. 
Women of noble birth were expected to be well-educated and knowledgeable individuals. If a king died unexpectedly, the queen commonly took over his place and may rule for the rest of her life. Women at this time were also given a range of jobs at temples, from temple dancers and musicians to cleaners, offering them a way to make their own money and to live independently from fathers and husbands. Daughters also inherited their mother's property on their death, and this would remain their property even during marriage, unless their husband critically needed it. However, while women were generally held in high esteem in India during this period, their access to life beyond their home walls was still limited. Girls were still expected to marry, but the possibility of life within the temple was open to some. Marriage would once again represent the end of childhood, but arranged child marriages were very rare during this time, and girls were generally included in the choosing of a husband. At the beginning of this period, Indian society placed importance on unity and equality, but as time passed, these values became less and less important, and by the end of the Middle Kingdoms, the position of women had changed dramatically. Women no longer had the right to attend political meetings and child marriages became more common. Marriage was now the only option for girls, with other doors to religious or political jobs closed to them, and once married their only role was unquestioned devotion to their husbands. Women were viewed as part of their husband's property, apart from the Brahmin caste, a class of privileged people. In medieval Europe, girls from all classes within society were brought up with the expectation that they would marry, have children and support their husband in running a house. For poorer women who needed to work, they would be expected to do all the jobs undertaken by men, but for considerably less pay. Working a skilled trade was an impossible dream for many girls, as women were barred from lots of jobs. If a girl grew up in a town, she could possibly make clothes, but the vast majority of those who worked would have done so in the fields. Medieval girls were not allowed to marry without their parents' consent. They could not own business without special permission. Once married, they could not divorce their husbands, even though their husbands could divorce them. They could not own any property unless they were widows, and could not inherit land if they had any brothers. Girls of poor backgrounds in medieval Europe would have worked from the earliest age and were treated as adults from the age of 10, expected to shoulder the responsibilities of making money for the family. While girls from rich families would have been married as teenagers, poorer girls would not get married until their 20s, as they were needed by their family. However, richer families would have used marriages between them to create political alliances, with the bride forced to marry whom her parents chose but poorer girls may meet and marry someone of their own choosing during the time they spent out of the house in their towns and villages. For all married women, producing a male heir was vital, and women spent much of their married lives pregnant. Childbirth was dangerous, and as many as one in five women died when giving birth. In her blog, Lucy Allen, a teaching associate at the University of Cambridge, notes that a level of freedom for girls in medieval Europe was possible through an apprenticeship. Girls of around 14 were able to seek an apprenticeship, placed with families to work alongside them for as much as 10 years to learn a trade. Most of the jobs open to women were related to cloth making and spinning. Some of the jobs even required a level of literacy, with apprentices being taught how to read and write. While such apprenticeships offered lower class girls an alternative to unskilled labour and marriage, this was only temporary 
as marriage was seen as a crucial rite of passage through which medieval girls achieved their status as adult women. Most would have continued to work in the cloth trade, but in line with medieval law, their earnings would have been ultimately controlled by their husband. For the European colonial settlers, the transformative nature of both the journey and the life in the colonies provided the opportunity for the development of new ideas of identity and society. While part of European empires, the reality of life in the colonies necessitated changing social and cultural attitudes for survival in new and challenging environments, testing the boundaries of traditional concepts of girlhood, the ideal woman and even fundamental aspects of European life, such as class. Through researching ship diaries, academics such as Lilja Sutter demonstrate that the long and commonly arduous journeys to colonies in the New World provided an opportunity for girls to try on new ways of thinking about girlhood and what a girl should be. While still divided by class, the ship offered the possibility of interactions between people who would have been separate in the strict class structure of countries such as England, offering the passengers a taste of the increasing class breakdown of the colonies. In diaries, girls tried on some of the characteristics expected of an ideal colonial girl, such as bravery, stoicism, religious observances, robust health and a domestic maternal role. The British settler communities envisaged the ideal girl as brave, resourceful and capable of engaging in hard work, loosening the gender constraints and class divisions of contemporary society back home. As they generally arrived into a society dominated by colonising men, women were viewed as a civilising force, bringing opportunities for respectable family life and cementing links with religion. The domestic sphere of British women at home was extended to include many other roles due to the outdoor life led by colonisers, giving them increased freedom and potentially influence. Caroline Campbell's research on the Billabong series of a of books written by Mary Grant Bruce in the early 20th century demonstrates one representation of the outback colonial girl. As Caroline notes, Nora, the main character in the Billabong series, demonstrates the Australian girl as self-determined and independent. While she is always under the guardianship of men, such as her father, she is able to engage in activities considered masculine, like horse riding. Indeed, her success in these activities demonstrates her equality in the outback, even though her respectability continues to be related to fulfilling her duty to her menfolk. While this is a literary representation of a colonial girlhood, the reality of life in a new and sometimes dangerous country meant that girlhood was seen as the time to bravely take on new challenges, to take an active role in the home and outside, in both support of the homestead and the search for a home as her own as a wife. The European colonial girl might therefore have experienced more independence, but her role was still inseparable from that of a daughter, a wife and a mother. What then was the experience of the colonised girls, girls from cultures that were under European rule? The Haida people of Haida Gwaii in British Columbia, Canada, a traditionally a matriarchal society, which means that the mother or oldest female represents the clan and holds power within government. Descent and relationship between people is also determined through the female line rather than the male. Traditionally, one older woman from each clan would control and make the most important decisions. The chiefs of the clan would work to tend to be the son, brother or nephew of the matriarch and would work closely together. 
Due to this strong role of women within Haida society, men and women were classed as equal in terms of decision-making and economics. Pre-colonial Haida girls would have been preferred to boys, guaranteeing a continuation of the mother's line. Different jobs were still performed by men and women, taught by their parents, aunts and uncles. Girlhood ended with puberty rite, during which girls were removed from the rest of their clan and forbidden to eat certain foods for a period of time. The end of boyhood was not ritualised. Parents arranged marriages, often while the betrothed were still children, but a woman's property continued to be her own after marriage and on her death it would be given to her daughter. Women continued to have full access to all levels of society before and after her marriage. During the colonial period, European traders came to Haida Gwaii to trade with the Haida. Due to their cultural background of men in power, they refused to deal with women and would not interact with the ruling women of the clans. By trading with the men of the clans rather than the matriarch, the traders undermined the matriarchal system. The ruling women were no longer in control of the society's economy. With this change and the increasing influence of European settlers, the equality of men and women disappeared from Haida society, and Haida women and girls were expected to adhere to, to European virtues of female innocence, purity and obedience. The current Haida nation is now making efforts to return to their traditional matriarchal society, rebuilding their culture decimated by the impact of colonisation. Experiences of girlhood in the Victorian period in England would have been highly dependent upon class. Girls from the working classes would have been relied upon by their family to work and provide money, and very few would have been educated. For poor Victorian girls in England, childhood would have been very short, with girls starting work in factories, in mines, in shops, as servants in big houses and in the fields, aged only five years old. Childhood was a time of hard work, without the few rights afforded to adults, and once married the rights of a woman were severely limited, as she would not legally own any property. Her husband could beat her within reason, and even the children would be considered as owned by her husband. While these rights for middle and upper class Victorian ladies were the same, girls from these classes had longer childhoods and access to education. Educated away from boys and only in certain useful subjects befitting a woman, middle and upper class girls were schooled in the arts of attracting an appropriate husband and running a household. While these girls did not have to find work in dangerous and low paid jobs, their economic futures depended on finding a husband to support them rather than the fulfilment of their own personal ambitions. Women in their mid-twenties were seen as past their prime and may find themselves living as spinsters, dependent upon their male family and with no financial independence or say in their lives. Marriage is a very important decision and the financial background of both families would be under scrutiny. Towards the end of the 19th century, women called for their right to vote, to be considered equal to men and for economic independence. Without having to rely on a husband to buy or rent property, women were increasingly able to pursue a career, with girlhood seen as a time to develop the skills and education necessary for a life as an adult, rather than preparing to be good wives and mothers. Across the world, girls in 19th century Japan, once again, were not considered as important as boys, who inherited titles and estates, 
However, a birth of a girl into a family was a case for celebration and a focus for presents from family, neighbours and friends. Girls in 19th century Japan were restricted by social rules and expected to live all their lives under the control of men. Girls were expected to be cheerful, obedient, clean and neat, her duties to be fulfilled in her father's and then her husband's home, rather than in the wider world. She was always dependent upon her father, husbands and sons, and would own nothing of her own. Japanese women at this time were expected to demonstrate a high level of self-control, hiding all signs of grief, anger or pain. This self-restraint was taught to young girls by their family and through stories. Respect for older people was, and continues to be, central to Japanese society, and as a young girl in a world dominated by older and more powerful men, Japanese girls were viewed as the least important in a family. Older members of the family would eat first and best, sit first, and receive respect from the rest of the family. As the Japanese girl grew older, her position in the family would rise, becoming an older sister and gaining respect from her younger siblings. While at home, Japanese girls in the 19th century would be trained by their mother and grandmother in all the duties required for a housewife. But there was also time for play and for taking part in festivals. Japanese families also loved their children. Most would have a happy and understanding life at home. The upper and middle classes educated by private tutors to read, write and to recite poetry or play an instrument. While obedient and cheerful, Japanese girls were also expected to be resourceful, strong and independent, more than capable of running a home. Even Japanese ideals of beauty at this time reflected expectations of obedience and emotional self-control, with the ideal girl demonstrating her respectful nature with downcast eyes, pale skin that suggested a life spent indoors and small shuffling steps with interned feet. Japanese girls were seen as becoming women on marriage, generally marrying at the age of 16. While a husband would be chosen for a girl by her parents, she would normally have a choice of, on whether she wanted to marry him or not. As much of her time was spent at home, Japanese girls during this period would not have met many people outside of their family. If she did meet someone at a festival, the boy would have to ask the parents' permission to marry her. Once married, the Japanese girl would move into her husband's house to focus on providing children and keeping the home. With no way to make money, not marrying or divorcing was near to impossible for women at this time. Some common themes have emerged during our exploration of girlhood throughout the ages, such as the importance of marriage and the movement from child to adult, and the fact that in cultures across the world and throughout time, men are generally in control. How then? Has girlhood and the experience of girls changed and what do girls experience now? In the West, girls are generally no longer expected to marry in order to become an adult and if they do want to marry, they will be allowed to carry on with their career and decide what they are to do with their wages, protected by the laws of their country. Women are able to divorce their partners, to own property and indeed choose very different lives without marriage or a family if they wish but this is not true for all places in the world. While daughters and sons inherit property from their parents equally in the West, sons are still very important in some societies, being the one to carry on a family name. In China, the one-child policy in towns and cities has led to the killing and abandonment of girl children in the desire to have a boy. 
China now has significantly fewer adult women to adult men. While Chinese culture is changing slowly to view girls as equal to boys, it will take a long time for such central cultural beliefs about inheritance and honour to change, especially in rural areas with low levels of interaction with other cultures. Societies across the world today see girlhood very differently, each dependent upon their own histories and cultures. However, television, radio and the internet means that ideas of what it means to be a girl can be communicated across the world, challenging traditions and offering new ways of thinking. The question is, are they as liberating as they seem to be? In her study of Western concepts of girlhood, Olga Ivashkev argues that while Western girlhood is becoming increasingly empowered and supporting an active and full interaction with society, it is based upon the consumption of things. The new concepts of successful women emerging in the West value independence, toughness, competitiveness, youth and self-control. Through these ideas, girls and women hope to better themselves through changing their bodies through exercise and, and self-control in terms of what they eat. They can stylize and craft their bodies through buying clothes and objects that demonstrate their success in terms of work and lifestyle. While Western concepts of girlhood suggest that women should be independent professionals, girls are also expected to have and personally care for their family. While most Western girls and women are increasingly gaining freedom to explore what it means to be female within a society that no longer values boys over girls, girlhood in the West is actually very complicated. A successful woman must be both a professional with a career and a carer for the children that she is supposed to have. Western ideals of women also continue to value physical beauty rather than what a woman can achieve within the world, the body of a woman continuing to be a reflection of her success. Women have generally been under the control of men, with girlhood viewed as a time of learning how to be a dutiful wife and mother. In some societies this has changed, with girls offered the same opportunities as their brothers and their male cousins. However, as our societies change, we need to make sure that our ambitions and identities value the things that women for hundreds of generations have wanted and in some cases fought for, such as the right to an education, a career, property, the choice of who we want to live our lives with and the equal treatment of children. After so many thousands of years, it is difficult to escape the traditional expectations of female beauty and the stereotypes of the selfless wife and mother. But it is important for all girls to take time to think about their role within society and what it is that they want to do with their lives. So, what does girlhood mean to you? What do you hope is the future for girls across the world and how do you think that we will get there? It is really up to you, the girls and the women of the future. We hope that you have enjoyed this podcast. Be sure to tune in to our next podcast on February the 15th, where we will be exploring the history of women-led revolutions and how coming together affects change. Also, please help to support future production of Girls Speak by visiting our Podbean site at girlmuseum.podbean.com and clicking support girl speak thank you and have a wonderful day if you like hearing a fresh girl positive perspective on the internet 
please support us with a tax-deductible donation easily made on our website. Our music is courtesy of up-and-coming artist Han Av. You can find her SoundCloud link on our website.